temperamental sure. one. Go ahead, give it a fresh start. Yeah. So, everyone, welcome to another episode of Chatter. Today, I'm here with Scott Horton, the director of the Libertarian Institute and author of Enough Already. Scott, welcome to the show. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Not a problem. So, after technical issues and everything, we can finally, yeah, get started. So, as a man who has had many thousands of interviews in the podcast space, what would you say you've learned from, yeah, t talking to so many thousands of people? I've learned everything about the terror wars. And I've learned a hell of a lot about our Eastern European policy. And I'm uh, much weaker on Latin America and East Asia stuff, but I'm really good on Korea and their nuclear program. Um, and I've learned a bit about China and that whole conflict surrounding Taiwan and all that stuff. But I wrote a book about every American Middle East intervention since 1979. And then chapter two became an entire book about Afghanistan first. And then I went back and finished the rest of the book. What, um, what was it that, that yeah. like, I'm working on one so about much. Eastern Europe right now. Mm, oh, okay. We're definitely going to get to that. But what was it about the, the, the chapter on Afghanistan that really made you like dive into it and decide to write an entire book on it? Like what was, what was the thing that, that led you down the rabbit hole that led to a full book? I mean, to be honest, it was a couple of things. I mean, the first thing is just that chapter one, which was sort of the prehistory 79 through 2001. I even cut out a lot of the Iraq stuff that I didn't need. The Iranian revolution, the Iran-Iraq war. Um, and one other major thing I forgot, all got cut to the cutting room floor there when I decided to focus on Afghanistan. But at first, and this is essentially the same chapter one in enough already, is all the interventions um, from Jimmy Carter through Clinton. And then by the time I got to chapter two on Afghanistan, um, then uh, I think what it was, I already had about 20,000 words. And then I wrote, I think about 20,000 more just in my torture section. And I was really summarizing. I was not elaborating and I wasn't like, you know, going off complaining much either. You know, I was just trying to summarize very quickly. Like we have the CIA aspect to it. Then you have the Guantanamo aspect to it where the military starts adopting the thing and then how then that spread to Afghanistan, really started in Afghanistan and then spread to the thing and then back again. And to, you know, it's, I don't know. I can't say that in less than 25,000, 30,000 words, something <laughs> like that. So then I'm like, man, this, this subsection of my Afghanistan chapter is really more like a subsection of a book. You know what I mean? Ended up, I didn't do a whole chapter on, on torture, but anyway, at, at that point I thought, you know, in the terror war, all the action is on the other side of Persia from there. All the action is in Iraq and all of that. So now I'm asking the reader to spend so much time in Afghanistan before we ever get to the exciting part or whatever. And it's just such a long war. And I didn't get the bright idea to break the chapter in half until later. I stole that idea from Andrew Basevich. Um, so I just thought, and it was a, even by then when I started writing it, the war was 16, you know, 15, 16 years old by that time. There's a hell of a lot to say about it. And I've been covering it all along. So I already knew what I wanted to say about it, you know, from beginning to end, pretty much. And um, and then plus, you know, at that time there was still, you know, Iraq War Three was going on and all of that, but Afghanistan was the you know continuous war. We had gotten out of Iraq for a minute there anyway. Afghanistan was sort of, you know, the ongoing one 
as you know, Syria was winding down after the Russians intervened there and whatever. So I just decided, you know, for that reason, I would just focus on Afghanistan first. And then, you know, I'm surprised I got a pretty good reception for a book about Afghanistan. I mean, I knew when I was writing it that it has Afghanistan in the title and how well could that possibly do? But um, it got a lot of word of mouth support. And I'm proud to say it's endorsed by Noam Chomsky and Douglas McGregor. So like America's most famous anti-war guy and the great hero of the, the big tank battle of Iraq War I in 1991 and the gruffle right-wing colonel from Fox News, you know, both like it and a bunch of other people too. Um, go to foolsaron.us and read all about that. So that's the Afghanistan book. And then enough already, I basically went back and started over again. And I did give Afghanistan a bit of a short shrift in there because I says in the footnote, well, go read the book if you want that, read Fool's Aaron. Um, and then, but it is, enough already is uh, the Iranian revolution, the Iran-Iraq war, the 1980s Afghan war, Iraq war one, Iraq war one and a half, the rise of Al-Qaeda and, and their war against us. And then Afghanistan, Iraq war two, Somalia, Pakistan, Libya, Syria, uh, Mali, and Yemen, Iraq War Three, and Yemen, and then the war at home. Yeah, so that's, that's all enough already in three hundred pages, if you can believe that. <clears throat> that this, this, this part of the world though is is so, it's so mired with conflict, and it has been for such a long period of time, and it's it's been it's been subject of so many like different interventions from from yeah the west and from you know russia at, at certain times and like through the cold war you go back and i'll not lecture you you know more than me about this so uh my question is essentially okay. my essentially is my question is essentially how or what is it about this region of the world do you think that means that that yeah america sort of leading the the charge but like backed up by you know many western powers what is what is it that we're doing there because, you know, I have my suspicions, you know, it could be about oil or terrorism or it could be about, you know, opioids and heroin and in you know, the poppy fields in Afghanistan. It could be about lithium ion. But like from someone who spent so long writing about about war in this in this part of the world, like why 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 is it such a, a conflict ravaged society and what draws us into that area in, in your opinion? Well, I mean, all of their problems that they have in the first place is kind of beyond my purview. But as far as what we're doing there and what's the big deal, I mean, as you already have, you know, quite uh, aptly demonstrated, it's a conspiracy of interests. It's oil. Of course, it's arms contractors. It's the Zionist movement in America and in Israel and around the world and a huge influence that the Israel lobby has over American and British politics for a couple of examples. Um, I think the heroin black market, you know, had a lot to do with keeping us in Afghanistan, all that liquid cash in the hands of connected gangsters. And every bank is only just one drawer away from total black market, you know, global heroin trade, you know, type dollars it's tens of billions a year at least in liquid money there black market money so that's a huge part of it, it must be um but you know arms sales and just you know shiny ribbons for generals uniforms that then of course also amount and most importantly besides the so-called valor that they get is 
you know, the, the more ribbons on your shirt, the better of a job you get on the board of directors at a defense firm when you retire. And so, you know, and then, you know, of course, the, the Middle Eastern states are weak. So as Paul Wolfowitz said, Iraq is doable, right? <laughs> Iraq had no more to do with September 11th than France did. But France has H-bombs. We can't go to war with them, <laughs> right? But Iraq, we can, you know, I, I uh, paraphrase Moff Tarkin in the book that quite frankly, and if you remember back, I don't know how old you are, but if you're old enough and remember back, Afghanistan was too remote to make an effective demonstration. And so they went to Iraq where people would be paying attention. I mean, in Afghanistan, the place was run by the Taliban. It's the town of Bedrock. There's nothing to bomb there. And, you know, Rumsfeld complained immediately. We're out of targets. They had a couple of concentrated army divisions. We obliterated them with a handful of J-dams. Now, what are we going to do? Just sit around bombing rocks and empty hillsides and this thing. We want to go and do some damage. And we want to set an example for the world that if you mess with us, in fact, if somebody you've ever met once messes with us, we might kill you. And that's how ruthless we are. And so nobody ever better mess with us again and what have you. Um, in the case of Iraq War II, to, you know, to go down the list of the principles, the president saw his father get unelected after four years. Why? In the thinking of W. Bush and a hell of a lot of people like him, and there must be some truth to this, right? Because he ended the war too early. Geez, dad, you got a 90% approval rating, but the election's not for a year and a half. That's plenty of time for Ross Perot to split the vote and Bill Clinton to come from behind and take the presidency away from you. They wouldn't dare change horses in midstream if you were in the middle of occupying Baghdad and changing the regime. And so no matter how many Iraqis have to die for that, it would have been worth it, dad, if you'd just done that so you could stay the president. So then when he got on, I mean, that was W's advice in the first place. Then, then he was right. His father got unelected. See, told you so. And then he spent eight years thinking how smart he was. And I have the, the block quote in the book. He tells Mickey, uh, Mickey Herskowitz, his authorized biographer before he switched. Um, and the guy who his family kept on, they had him write the biography of Prescott Bush next. And he quotes W. Bush saying, if I have a chance to go to war with Iraq, I'm going to do it. And I'm going to be a successful president because it's a war president in history. It's the war presidents who are the great presidents. And then I'll be able to get my entire agenda through and blah, blah, blah. Just says it plain as day, as simple as that. And, you know, they tried to deny it, but there's no reason in the world to think that this guy who is a legitimate journalist and who claims that he has it on tape, um, you know, he had no reason in the world to lie. And then again, W. Bush's father hired this guy to then write the biography of Prescott Bush after that. So apparently they didn't think that he had lied about that quote at all. And I think there's also the whole thing about W. Bush knows that he's a stupid freaking idiot. Right. And that his father always kind of resented him for being a letdown and a loser. You know, it's in the Oliver Stone clip. It's probably not an exact quote, but it's very close. And it certainly summarized the trip. Uh, you know, the the reality of the situation when the father says to W. Bush, you're a real disappointment for me, Junior. You know, and he's like, where? So 
this is the whole thing. I'm going to prove I'm tougher and smarter and better than my father and all this kind of thing. Everybody always said that it was to avenge his father because Saddam Hussein tried to kill him. Well, first of all, do you really believe that? Give me a break. That's, that lie was so debunked by Seymour Hersh in the New Yorker 30 years ago. What a bunch of crap. Oh, yeah, Saddam was going to truck bomb George Bush to death. Shut up. Anyway, the Kuwaitis made that up. And the CIA and FBI knew they were lying, and then they decided to lie, too. That's all. Um, but then, also, Bush wasn't wouldn't animated by that. That wasn't it. It was trying to show up his old dad. But then he got Dick Cheney. Now, Dick Cheney, I think, first of all, probably is a Zionist by ideology anyway. But more importantly, he's a really lousy CEO. And what happened was Halliburton, which was also the owner of the subsidiary Kellogg, Brown and Root. They're not an oil company. They're an oil services company, right? They build pipelines. They do big construction. They're like the Bin Laden family of Texas. They do <laughs> um, huge, you know, government contract construction. And so um, they thought that by hiring Dick Cheney, they would just be hitching onto the gravy train. The problem was Dick Cheney was a politician. He didn't know anything about business. And so what he did, him and his right-hand man, the CFO, whose name I always forget, but it's in the book, they bought a firm called Dresser Industries, I swear like a week and a half, two weeks before literally billions, not hundreds of millions, literally billions of asbestos cancer claim lawsuits started coming due against Dresser. Dick Cheney bought them like a week and a half before the dam broke and the storm started. So this was just absolutely the most idiotic and negligent self-inflicted wound to Halliburton. So he owed them big time. Mm. And so the solution was, I'm going to put them on the dole building bases for the army and doing contracts for the army. And, you know, this is this company, they got their big start working with LBJ in the first place. It's a very political company. They made huge contracts in Vietnam and, you know, they've been a very political corporation all along. And here, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if Dick Cheney was personally terrified of them and what was going to happen to him if he didn't fix what he had broken there. And then you have Donald Rumsfeld, who had been the secretary of defense before. And now it's the post-Cold War era. And there's this huge fight on about transformation of the military and how are we going to transform it? Well, Rumsfeld had his own ideas. He wants to go cut back on the army, build up special operations forces and build up on the air force. We'll go in light and fast to smash the hell out of them like Iraq war one. And then we'll get right back out again. That would be the model. And so he would do the transformation and Iraq would be the showcase for how we're supposed to do this. And then you got the neocons and that's Paul Wolfowitz. And, and well, let's start at the Pentagon so I can keep them straight. On the Defense Policy Board, led by Richard Pearl and uh, Kenneth Edelman and Gene Kirkpatrick on the Defense Policy Board. Then you had uh, Paul Wolfowitz was the Deputy Secretary of Defense and Douglas Fife was the Deputy Secretary of Defense for Policy. And under him was Abram Shulsky, who ran the Office of Special Plans, which included Michael Rubin and Michael Ledeen and another handful of these neocon apparatchiks. I forgot if Moravchik was one of them. Then across the hall from the Office of Special Plans, you had the Policy Counterterrorism Evaluation Group, which was run by, it was under Fife, but it was uh, Michael Maloof and David Wormser. And then David Wormser left. Oh, and then there was, oh, uh, oh, it's on the tip of my tongue, this guy at the Pentagon, the, the Office of Net Assessment was, um, 
Ola. Oh, God dang it, Bobby. Uh, I'm so sorry. It's oh, right on the tip of the Anyways, so then Wormser goes to state and Wormser's with Bolton. Now, Bolton's not truly a neocon. To be a neocon, you had to used to be a leftist and then you became a right winger. That's what it means. Neoconservative. It's not just neoconservative. It doesn't mean conservative nowadays. It means this particular sect of kooks who used to be commies and then became Reaganites. It's them and their sons and their sons. I can elaborate on that in a little while. It's yeah, a that, specific that. biographical definition. But so Bolton, for example, is not a neocon because he's a lifelong Barry Goldwater right wing nationalist mm -hmm. conservative. Right. Um, he loves neocons and they love him and they're you know, kissing cousins, but they're not the same thing. But he's right there with Wormser, and their job is to keep a leash on Colin Powell and his right-hand man, Dick Armitage, and prevent them from getting in the way of them doing too much damage, which is what they were trying to do, right? And Powell was trying to stop them half-heartedly, at least. And so their job was, they worked directly for Cheney as, you know, his con the control over Colin Powell at state. Then on the National Security Council, you had Stephen Hadley and Robert Joseph and um, yeah, oh Elliot Abrams and um, and and now um, I'm trying to think I'm I'm leaving one off of that NSC. Elliot Abrams was there, I know for sure. And then in the vice president's office, very importantly, you had Scooter Libby who was also special assistant to the president <laughs> and um, and John Hanna and Harold Road. And, and I'm forgetting one more, too. I'm, I'm getting weak in my old age here. <laughs> and these guys, listen, you can tell. I'm sorry, but you know where I'm going with this. These guys are agents of the state of Israel. They work for Benjamin Netanyahu and their job was lying the American people in the war. And, you know, Colin Powell's right-hand man, uh, Lawrence Wilkerson, said that out of all of these guys, Wormser and Fife were literal agents of influence for Israel. And so he was, you know, being, he was discriminating there between these guys who are de facto Likud, but between these guys are really working for Netanyahu. And it's a good point, too, that they weren't so much working for Sharon. They were working for Netanyahu. Now, Sharon was prime minister at the time, and he went along with this. But he urged Bush to attack Iran first. And then when Bush said, no, 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 we're doing Iraq first, and all the American neocons said we're doing Iraq first, Sharon said, okay, fine. But that was because the American neocons were much closer with Netanyahu than they were with Sharon, who ended up, by the way, if you remember, breaking away from Likud and creating his own party, Kadima, later, uh, which was taking a step left from Netanyahu's Likud nationalism. But anyway... So Likud, so, so Netanyahu's faction of Likud and the neocons in America, they wanted rid of Saddam Hussein. And you can read this, and it's a lot of fun in a way. It's just, it's a ridiculous, who, no offense to any Iraqis listening, how fun it is, but you read um, a clean break, a new strategy for securing the realm. And its primary author is Wormser, David Wormser. And it's co-signed by Richard Pearl, who absolutely co-signed every little bit of it. And Douglas Fife, who later denied that he agreed with it. <laughs> um, and then Charles Fairbanks and a couple of others. But those are the big three, you know, clearly in the first term of the W. Bush administration who wanted us to go to Iraq no matter what. Now, what I'm about to say doesn't make sense, but it's not because I'm confused. It's just confusing because these guys are a bunch of kooks who believe a bunch of stupid lies and then repeat them to us. So this is how it washes out. Okay. <laughs> 
Now we're going back to the 90s. Saddam's still in power. We got this kind of stalemate. America's bombing the no-fly zones. They've tried to do a coup and a revolution in 90, uh, first a revolution and then a coup in 95 and 96. Neither of those worked. They're still doing the no-fly zone bombing. And Wormser comes out and he says, you know, we have to finish this job. Now, he's actually not saying we should invade the country, but he's saying we have to finish the job of overthrowing Saddam Hussein. In fact, there's a, I should mention for your people who are really interested in this, the companion piece is called Coping with Crumbling States. And then there's a book called Tyranny's Ally, which is with a foreword by Richard Pearl. It's just a clean break, full length book version. Same damn thing. And Coping with Crumbling States is the same thing too. They say the same thing over and over again. And it basically goes like this. Israel's problem is Shiite Hezbollah in Southern Lebanon. Okay. And what, so what we want to do is we want to break the chain of power from Shiite Iran through Syria to Hezbollah. And the way to do that is by getting rid of Saddam Hussein in Iraq. Now you're thinking, see, I can see it on your face. You're going, yeah, but didn't we, didn't Ronald Reagan and George Bush's father back Saddam Hussein in war against Iran for yeah. eight years to right. contain the Iranian revolution? And isn't that the same reason that Bush Sr., after he encouraged the Shiites to rise up after Iraq War One, that then he changed his mind and stabbed them in the back and let Saddam Hussein mass murder 100,000 of them rather than let them win the revolution? Because he was afraid that the Iranians were going to come in and dominate the Shiite factions and take over the power of the country. So now you tell me why getting rid of Saddam Hussein is supposed to weaken Iran's influence in the region when it seems like he's the only thing holding their influence back. Well, here's the answer. The answer is David Worms are stupid and Richard Pearl, too. And what they believed was that if we got rid of Saddam Hussein, then rather than Iran have an influence in Baghdad, the king of Jordan will inherit all the power in Baghdad. And because the Hashemite family declares that they are descended from the prophet Muhammad, then that means the Iraqi Shiite supermajority will bend over and do whatever they're told uh, because they are like, I don't know, slaves to anyone who claims to have the blood of Muhammad in their veins. And then that way, get this, now the new Sunni Hashemite kingdom in Iraq will order the Shiite clergy in Najaf to tell Hezbollah to stop being friends with Iran and to instead be friends with Israel and Jordan and Turkey and America's axis of power in the region. Now, see, this is completely crazy. Yeah, it's like, completely can I, crazy. Can I stop you here for just a second? Yes, please. Are they really that stupid? Yes, because, sir. Like, because, right, okay, so like we started this conversation talking, like, I mean, I'm not doubting that they really are this stupid, right? But like we started the conversation talking about, um, this like military industrial pipeline where that uh -huh. you know the the more the more metals you have the more the the better the the job at, at you know Boeing sure. or Caliburton or you know uh, Raytheon or or whatever you know military industrial complex um, private military contractor you know however you want to describe them sure are they just are they just coming up with stupid like just any reason that they can think of to pretend like they have a good no. reason to go to war? Not in this case. Okay. Not in this case. Listen, you are barking up the right tree, okay? But just not this time. And these guys basically are Israel firsters. That's what they care about. Wormser and Fife, again, 
too singled out by Wilkerson as being, uh, you know, literal agents of the state of Israel. Colin Powell himself uh, called Douglas Fife's office in the Pentagon, Fife's Gestapo office, um, and said that these guys with Cheney had created a separate government inside the government in order to just completely wrest control of the entire state apparatus and, you know, essentially force us, just bum rush us into that war. Um, whereas the professional, you know, the basic government, like if Al Gore had been the president, we would have bombed Iraq for eight years straight, but we would have not marched in there like that. Joe Lieberman could not have pulled that off the way that Richard Pearl and Paul Wolfowitz pulled that off. And yes, they were convinced that what this was going to do was this is going to give the Hashemites while well, seeing they changed their plan. Like, wait, how old are you again? How old are you, were you I'm at 20, the time? I'm 28. So I was born in 94. Oh, OK. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now you're a kid. You don't remember. But <laughs> I so, don't know. <laughs> um, no, it's OK. Um, I'm just trying to, you know, I don't know, like uh, how much reference you have to, to this stuff as it was going on at the time. But there was a guy named Ahmed Chalabi. And he was an Iraqi exile who was a swindler, a bank embezzler. They call them, you know, a tinker soldier spy. Um, and he led a group called the Iraqi National Congress, which had been put up by the CIA. They were the ones that tried to do the revolution in 95. That was a total catastrophe. And the CIA had put a burn notice on them. These guys are scum. We don't deal with them anymore. Then the Pentagon just picked them up and was paying them. And these were the guys who supplied all the lies about the weapons of mass destruction. Oh, I want you to meet my cousin Ahmed. He saw where they keep the mobile biological weapons laboratories. Tell him, Ahmed. But it's just one group of guys who are just getting paid millions of dollars to just come up with whatever they can come up with. And nothing that they came up with was true. None of it. And even like you'll hear about Curveball. He was the most famous one with the biological weapons labs. He was the cousin of the secretary of the INC. You know, and then but there were a hundred more on chemical weapons, warehouses full of anthrax and VX and sarin and and uh, an active nuclear weapons program. And, oh, we all have little pieces of centrifuges buried in our gardens for some day. And all of this crap, just whatever they could just like spaghetti thrown against the wall, just come up, as they say, flood the zone with S word there. Right. Just just as many lies as you can tell about how Saddam Hussein definitely has these active programs. Well, that same guy, Chalabi, they replaced him in the script uh, or they used him to replace the Hashemite king in the script because the king of Jordan died and he was replaced by his cousin or whoever. I think his cousin is the guy that they wanted to put in power. And then they changed their story. At one time, they just want to make him the king of Jordan and Iraq. And another time they bring up his cousin and other times they're not exactly clear about which Hashemite king they imagine here. But by the time of the war, they go, well, OK, the whole Hashemite King thing, that's not going to work out. But what we'll do is we'll put our guy Chalabi in there and he's a Shiite. And so as long as we put him in there, he's loyal to us. He'll do what we want and all that. But then that's not what happened at all. And there's a great if you really want to read, you'll have a good time reading this. Write this one down, too. Um, I, I block quote it to death. I hope they don't accuse me of plagiarism. I block quote the hell out of it in enough already. It's such a just. It's a wild ride of a thing, man. It's called How Ahmed Chalabi, that's C-H-A-L-A-B-I, How Ahmed Chalabi Conned the Neocons. And it's just, you know, as they say these days, face palm. It's just, oh, man. And, and they quote um, Douglas Feist law partner Mark Zell, who makes his living representing Israeli settlers on the West Bank. Um, and he's going, 
that Ahmed Chalabi, he's a treacherous, traitorous, spineless turncoat. Why, he stabbed us in the back. He promised the new Iraq was going to be friends with Israel. He promised they were going to build an oil and water pipeline to Haifa. He promised they were going to tell Hezbollah to stop being mean to Israel anymore. When? And then what are they complaining about? And then the picture at the top, if you just put it in your Google right now, you see the picture at the top is Ahmed Chalabi shaking hands with the president of Iran. And they're like, ha. Ah. And then the whole thing's a joke. And then, as we all know, the story of Iraq War II is America. I hope we all know. The story of Iraq War II, 2003 through 11, is that America fought the civil war for the Shiites and picked up, W. Bush picked up where his father left off when his father encouraged the Shiite uprising and they betrayed them and let Saddam crush them in 91. Well, 12 years later, W. comes in and takes them all the way to Baghdad. But they don't like us, right? They what, like he bought their loyalty or something? They need our money and guns more than they need the friendship of their co-religionists. Uh, in their nation next door that they're going to have to live next door to from now into eternity? I don't think so. And so that was why they told Bush to leave. In 2008, they, they wouldn't give us one base. Bush said, I want 56 bases. They laughed in his face. He goes, well, what about 40? And they're like, yeah, no. He goes, well, I mean, 10 bases? We're going to have 10. How about, we, how about you guys let us have like a few really big bases? And they're like, no, beat it, scum. And it was his last year in power. There's nothing he could do. He signed on the dotted line that we'll leave by 2011. Mm. And then, you know, how Obama built the Islamic caliphate and the excuse to go back is a whole other story. But I guess to go back to your question, to, to give even more credence to the way you framed it, the military has a phrase. They coined it. The grunts coined it in Vietnam, I believe. Self-licking ice cream cone. And that is the military, not just that they're the excuse, you know, that... um you know, the damage that they cause becomes the excuse for their next intervention and their next intervention, but that that suits them just fine. And they, they do understand that, right? In other words, we do a regime change in Libya. Best case scenario, everything works out and we got loyal American sock puppets to rule Libya from now on to forever, right? But if it doesn't work out, then cool, we'll just get to bomb Libya forever. And we'll have new missions for our special operations forces. We'll have to chase the jihadists down into Mali and Chad and Niger and Sierra Leone, Nigeria. And we'll get to expand our, you know, drone wars and some lobbyists will make some money. Some special operations generals will get some stars and and we'll get to keep the thing going. And in fact, you see what a rack you want to see what a racket American militarism is. Just look at the fact that if you ask SOCOM what's important in the world right now, they'll tell you. It's fighting jihadists from Iraq to Nigeria, right? But if you ask the Navy, they're like, nah, man, the problem is China, <laughs> right? Because yeah. that's their interest. The Navy and the Marines is fighting air, sea battle and all of this stuff, right? But then the Army is like, nah, we definitely need to build up in Eastern Europe to contain the Russia. This is all their own interests. And the thing is, to be completely amoral, but just like, uh, you know, descriptive, but not normative about it. You can kill Pashtuns and Iraqis and Somalis and Yemenis and Malians for the rest of the century. And there's nothing they can do about it. They can hijack your own plane and crash it into something maybe. But you want to build up and restart the Cold War with Russia and China. China is the weaker of the two. 
China only has 300 hydrogen bombs. Well, I I mean, in mil raw military power. Okay. They only have 300. Though. I was like, really? The weaker? Yeah. Well, yeah, okay, bye. Yeah. They only have 300 H-bombs. That's enough to destroy only, our entire... Only 300. <laughs> that's right. That'd be, that'd be the end of America and Great Britain forever and ever and ever and ever. No one could even rebuild anything here ever again. That'd be it. Survivors would be, you know, dead or mutants or flee into Mexico or whatever. That's it. Um, and so you really do have, it sounds crazy, but it really is like this. Where you don't really have a national interest. You have these very narrow interests. By the way, it's no coincidence that the military industrial complex firms like Lockheed bankroll the neoconservative think tanks like the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. And it was the Project for a New American Century. Now it's the Foreign Policy Initiative or whatever Bill Crystal's new thing is. Mm -hmm. um, but all of those are bankrolled. Um, you know, Center for Security Policy and all those are bankrolled by the military industrial complex. Um, you know. They make the hardware and the money, but they need eggheads to make the excuses, right? And so now it's true that David Wormser really thought he was smart, but it's also true that that was how he got paid was writing something that Lockheed wanted to hear. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it, it all goes around and around. Yeah. But um, yeah, anyways, we have a, we have um, a similar we have a similar setup with our with the think tanks that in in Britain that the that's ones right. that yes yeah, so. I look at BAE BAE is one of the most powerful corporations in Britain mm -hmm. and nobody thinks otherwise you're supposed to what like avert your eyes and think that what they don't lobby that they and you know what they have it's perfectly deniable I quote this in the book too um, you can find direct quotes from Raytheon from Northrop Grumman from Lockheed I'm sure from BAE Systems as well saying hey listen. The government asks us for weapons and then like, what are we supposed to tell them? No, like we are just satisfying the needs of our government's demand to provide security for the people. And it's like, yeah, well, then how come you spent 50 million dollars on steak dinners for congressmen last year then, jerk? Right. Like we know what's going on here. You got you, you bankroll 15 think tanks that write all the studies that say why we have to keep going. And then you sit there and play innocent and go, no, this is a 100% demand side business. Mm -hmm. We don't have salesmen at Lockheed. No, sir. We only have people who receive our congressional customers when they come to demand things from us. That's it. You know, no, no one believes that. And then, so what's the opposite of that? The opposite of that is they do everything they can to promote a hawkish foreign policy so they can keep our country at war so they can keep going to the bank. Everybody can see it. They get them out of Afghanistan. Oh, now what are we going to do? We got to pivot to somewhere. We can't just let them go out of business and get real jobs. We got to start another fight somewhere else. And as my friend Adam calls it, it's the flea wagging the dog. That's exactly what it is, man. It would be like if for some somehow you let, you know, the town of Cincinnati decide everything for all the rest of America, only according to their own interests, but none of the rest of us. And I just picked that town at random. No offense, people from Ohio. What do you got, against, what do you got against Cincinnati, man? Like, <laughs> Yeah, nothing. I just, I, it seemed random enough. It's a silly sounding word. You know, I like it. Cincinnati. Uh, I knew a guy from Cincinnati. But listen, um, that's what it is. It's like, it, it, it's, um, you're letting the corporate directorship of Lockheed Martin Marietta decide everything for everyone, including how far we should push. I mean, this is a little bit like figure speech, but not really, in including right up to 
how far we should push our conflict with Russia. Because again, all the people doing the deciding are getting paid by them. I mean, that doesn't mean that Lockheed calls up each and every one of these people and tells them their marching orders every day or what to say about everything or whatever. But, you know, Victoria Newland, you know, her family runs the Institute for the Study of War. That's her brother-in-law and sister-in-law, um, Fred and Kimberly Kagan, run the Institute for the Study of War. And, um, you know, her husband, Robert Kagan, writes for The Atlantic. And I don't know what all think tanks he's a part of. He's certainly made millions of uh, running PNAC and other um, firms, you know, during the last 20, 25 years anyway. And she's in charge of our Russia policy now. So it's not like they just picked the most qualified lady out of the 300 million of us to be in charge of our Russia policy. They picked somebody with a conflict of interest because she has a conflict of interest, right? They all do. That's what they're doing up there. It's just, it's it, there's some fantasy that there's some democracy where the people in charge are the people who deserve to be there. Um, otherwise, they wouldn't have got the job, would they? And that's just, it's begging the question, right? It goes without saying, be, but it's not true. And, and you certainly couldn't demonstrate the truth of it because you couldn't. I mean, look at who our secretaries of state are going back. I look who's our secretary of state right now, Anthony Blinken. Are you kidding me? Out of 300 million of us, this is the most qualified guy to be dealing with Sergey Lavrov right now, who in fact refuses to deal with Sergey Lavrov and hasn't even talked to him since February the 15th. Wait, since and these February aren't, the 15th? They're not sending their best, as Donald Trump yeah, would say. Yeah, as Donald Trump would say, they're not sending their best. Yeah, I mean, I, I've made this observation before that a lot of times the, um, yeah, members of the cabinet on both sides of the Atlantic seem to be chosen for solely for their ability to destroy the department that they're in charge of or or be oh i wish that was true well i mean i'd settle destroy, for that <laughs> but i mean undermine the like the ideal idealistic purposes of said department i think oh, is a sure. better way of oh uh, that's different no i i hear you yeah no our look our diplomats don't lead here whatsoever our secretary of state's job is figuring out ways to cause conflict mm. not solve them and our, you know, they renamed our Department of War, the Department of Defense, as soon as they declared permanent jihad on the whole world after World War II in NSC 68. When, when was and that? Then, was it, did it used to be called the Department of War? In the National War? Security Act of 1947. At the same ah, time, okay, they created the CIA and they, yeah. they re reorganized the entire War Department into the Department of Defense. And that was at the same time that they were dividing the entire planet up into its different combatant commands under the control of the one world government, mm. the Pentagon. Right. Well, I want to get to Ukraine and, and um, yeah, everything that's happening there and just Eastern Europe generally, because I know you're writing a book sure. on it. It's coming out soon. And, and yeah, I have zero idea what to think about the Russia-Ukraine conflict apart from I don't want war. So um, it would be nice to get get, get your thoughts on, on kind of what's going on. But first, I want to go back to something that you said there um, quite early on. Um, you talked about a lot of these guys are are Israel first, that they're either de facto or literal agents of Mossad. And this this is like a, a topic that comes up a lot. In a, you know, Mossad seems to pop up everywhere. And, and it after a certain amount of time of me interviewing like loads of different people uh, across like loads of different areas like so say like i was talking to like former a former sex slave about um epstein and, and maxwell and then Mossad obviously keeps coming up in that story then i'd be talking to someone um about yeah afghanistan the taliban just the middle east generally Mossad starts popping up again 
and and there seems to and I've been talking to people uh, like Jen per- Perlman who who we spoke about like um, yeah her progressive ideals so she's also very anti-war and again Mossad keeps popping up in the conversation like what is it about this intelligence agency and and the state of Israel that has so much sway over so many politicians and and military figures and people all around the world in incredibly influential positions. What is it about Israel and Mossad that are uh, have this power over so many people? Like, what have they got on them all? What what are they paying them? What is the like? What's the, like as as far as you can? Well, tell, you're answering your own question there, right? I mean. But well, I mean, no, I, don't I mean, think money explains is, it. Like, if they're if they're able to pay off everyone in every influential position, like, where the fuck is the money coming from? <laughs> well, all right. So there's a few <laughs> different questions. I mean, primarily, what you're really getting at, I think, is why is Israel so ruthless and yeah. so active in dominating these major countries? And the answer is because it's a tiny, weak little country. And I mean, imagine if you and I were running the state of Israel. It would be absolute our number one absolute highest national security interest would be guaranteeing our alliance with the United States of America first, Britain second, European Union third. There's nothing more, and Russia after that, nothing more important in the world for Israel than making sure that the major powers are close with them. As they say about the Americans, they insist, no daylight. Even if we disagree, if there's a difference in our policy at all, we talk about it privately. We never even discuss it. We never even admit to the world that there's a difference. Now, this is a real problem because as we've kind of been, you know, beating around the bush here a little bit with the the war here, is it's a long story and everybody read enough already, but you can see how, as I explained, in Iraq War II, we gave the Iranians Baghdad, their best friends. Well, ever since then, we've been fighting back on Al-Qaeda's side again in the war in Libya, in the war in Syria, until it blew up into the entire caliphate. Then we had to take the Shiite side again to destroy it again. Mm. Then we're back on Al-Qaeda's side in Yemen. And the reason why is essentially because not just Israel, but also Saudi Arabia uh, and Turkey. Like these are the Sunni powers, the GCC. These are the Sunni powers and and Israel is in alliance on their side, uh, clearly. And so... We just screwed our own side. W. Bush screwed our own side really bad by helping the Shiites in Iraq. So now they're trying to make up for it. And they did it again for Israel in the first place, the idiots. Now they're trying to make up for that fact. So if we gave Baghdad to Iran, at least we can try to take Damascus away. So that was why they launched the war in Syria, for example, which, of course, just drove Syria further into the arms of Iran and Hezbollah and then eventually Russia in order to defend themselves from the dirty war that the Americans and the Israelis and the Saudis and the Turks were backing there. Um, but so anyway, I bring that up just to say that you can see on, just to completely dumb it down all the way. Israel hates the Shiites more. But it was bin Laden, the extremely radical Sunni Saudi that knocked our towers down. That's who makes up Al Qaeda. There's not a single Iranian or a single Shiite who's ever been a member of that group fighting against us ever. So if our primary, if the American people's primary interest in the Middle East is keeping Al Qaeda down and keeping radical Sunni militias down, then we are 100% opposite 
intentions and motivations from our Israeli friends. They hate the Ayatollah more, and they're perfectly happy to see Al-Qaeda win. They're perfectly happy to see a suicide bomber cut somebody's head off before he sets off his belt and kills even more civilians, as long as they're Shiites, as long as they're on the Iranian side. And so you can see right there, talk about daylight. We're on the entire other side of the planet from them on as well. Our government is not. Our government agrees with Tel Aviv, but not with the American people. But it was not Hezbollah that knocked those towers down. It was not the Ayatollah that knocked those towers down. That was the Saudis and their, you know, sock puppets, um, America's friends. If you think about it, America's back, the jihadists, really since before Jimmy Carter, since, you know, the Safari Club in the late 1970s. Um, and then, but especially starting with the war in Afghanistan, all the way through Ronald Reagan, H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton backed them too. Even though Al-Qaeda started attacking us in 1990 with the assassination of Rabbi Kahane, then they tried to blow up the World Trade Center in 93, tried to kill Americans in Yemen in 92 and in 95, blow up Kobar Towers in 96, the African embassies in 98, the coal in 2000. All during that time, Bill Clinton was still backing them anyway. Backed them in Bosnia, backed them in Kosovo, backed them in Chechnya. Putin brought this up in his declaration of war. Yeah, I know you backed the terrorists in Chechnya in 99. You think I forgot about that? Yeah, he didn't think it was funny at all. Um, and, and that sounds like conspiracy stuff, but it's not. It's completely true and I can prove it. Um, and, and you can tell why he's taking that as seriously as he was. Then W. Bush gets, you know, after eight months on the job, the towers are knocked down on his watch. And then he declares a terror war. He goes after the first thing he does is let Al Qaeda go and focus on the Taliban that didn't do it instead, even though he could have negotiated over Al Qaeda in the first place. He calls off the attack on them in Torbor. I make the case in both books yeah. and well that he deliberately let them go. And he takes the fight to the Taliban instead. And then he goes after Sunni Saddam uh, and completely changes the subject, or I should say secular Sunni Saddam uh, in Iraq and completely changes the subject. Then by 2005, he's right back on the side of the bin Ladenites again. And then Obama just picked up from there. When conservatives said Obama is a secret Muslim from Kenya, no, he's just George W. Bush. That's all he is. Bush invented the policy. You can read it in the New Yorker. Write this one down, too. In fact, this is the most important footnote of the whole show today. Okay. The Redirection by Seymour Hirsch. And it goes, read everything he wrote in 07, 08. But um, you know, preparing the battlefield and the Iran plans and all these things. But that's the most important one, the redirection. It's about, oops, we gave Baghdad to Iran's best friends. Now we better figure out some consolation prizes. So we're trying to back bin Ladenites against Hezbollah in Lebanon. We're supporting. We got Liz Cheney working in the State Department for W. Bush, setting up the Syrian National Council made up of who? Ah, the Muslim Brotherhood to be the government in exile waiting to replace Bashar al-Assad and back in Jandala terrorists against um, the Iranians. And those are some serious head chopping suicide bomber bin Ladenite maniacs there, Jandala. And, and doing all this because, oops, we gave Baghdad to Iran and now we're trying to make up for it to the Saudi king. Um, and you can read this in the WikiLeaks, by the way, where Zalmay Khalilzad goes to talk to the Saudi king in January 2006, bowing and scraping. I'm so sorry, your highness for um, giving Baghdad to the Ayatollah, uh, but we're going to make it up to you. And the Ayatollah and the, and the Saudi king says, I don't understand. It used to be us and you and Saddam against Iran. 
Now you've given Iraq to Iran on a golden platter. What are you going to do about it? And he goes, uh, well, I'll try to make up for it. Uh, this is the redirection policy right there. I don't know how I got this far off on the tangent back to Iraq, but uh and I have no idea how I got off on this tangent, but here's where I'll, here's how I'll get back. The same guy who left our troops in Saudi Arabia for eight years to bomb Iraq in the, in during Iraq war one and a half. In the meantime, Bill Clinton, he's the same guy who broke HW Bush's promise and expanded NATO into the East. The same guy, as I just said, who backed bin Laden and his friends against Russia in Chechnya in 1999 in the Second Chechen War. Um, and also, of course, uh, bombed Serbia twice in the Bosnian War and in the Kosovo War in 95 or 94 and then uh, 1999, those uh, Russia's closest allies in Europe. They promised NATO expansion. It's just a defensive alliance. It's just it's a cocktail party circuit. We're just spreading democracy and normalcy and security. And then what do they do? The literally weeks after Poland, Hungary, and the Czech Republic are brought into NATO, they launch a war in Kosovo. Literally like weeks later in the spring of 1999, um, outside the UN charter, totally violated the UN charter, launched that aggressive war. Um, then, and he also sent the Harvard boys to destroy the Russian economy. Don't get me off on that tangent, but it's a hell of a thing. Then W. Bush comes in. First thing he does is tear up the anti-ballistic missile treaty and announced plans to put anti-missile missiles in Poland and the Czech Republic. Then he expands NATO even further, including up to the Baltic states, uh, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. And in 2008, he announces that he's going to bring Ukraine and Georgia into NATO. Hmm. He also, and Bill Clinton started this in fact, but W. Bush continued the project of the color-coded revolutions. And that's where they try to overthrow any government friendly to Russia through a coup d'etat dressed up as a revolution, essentially. And so this started uh, earlier. They tried it in Albania and Azerbaijan or in Albania and Armenia in in the like mid Clinton years, uh, mid 90s. But then in 2000, they did this to Milosevic in Serbia. Then in 2003, uh, Shevard was overthrown for Shakashvili in Georgia. In 2004, the orange revolution in Ukraine, where they prevented Yanukovych from taking power after he won an election and they reheld the election and made sure their guy Yushchenko and his ally Timoshenko won in 2004. Then in 2005, they tried it with the Denim Revolution in Belarus, which failed. They succeeded with the Kyrgyzstan revolution in uh, 2005, the Tulip Revolution for a few years anyway, before that fell apart. And then they tried with the Cedar Revolution in Lebanon, which had failed. Um, which is supposed to be an anti-Hezbollah, anti-Syria type thing. But boy, did they pull out a much bigger turnout than the American side did. So that was the end of that. Anyway, so that's the, the policy of the color-coded revolutions. Um, and then Obama comes in. And Obama, um, he first was really of all, peaceful, right? That's, that's what we get yeah, told, right? Wouldn't that be <laughs> funny? Wouldn't that be a cool story? And then Obama finally solved everything. And that's why the world's at peace right now. Um, <laughs> You know, so Obama comes in, he uh, finishes the job, even though remember his hot mic moment with Medvedev saying, well, I can't do it now. You got to wait till after the election. And then I promise I'm going to not put the missiles into Poland and Romania. Yeah, right. And he, he was just lying to Medvedev. And he was saying, tell Vladimir, I just need a little breathing room after the election. So I'm going to say something hawkish now, but I am going to get rid of the missiles. That was a lie. 
It was a lie. He didn't do that. Um, now, these, these anti-missile missiles are launched from the MK-41 missile launchers that can also be used to launch Tomahawk missiles, which can be equipped with hydrogen bombs. And not that they really have them there, but that's the threat. Yeah. So on one hand, they're threatening like first strike capability. But if we hit you with our first strike, now we believe we can shoot down any retaliatory strike you've got left with our anti-missile missiles. So that tips the whole balance of mutually assured destruction right there. But secondly, those Tomahawk missiles in Poland, that's now just a 15, 20 minute flight time to Moscow. And so, you know, that's essentially, it's, it was a loophole in the intermediate nuclear forces treaty that we can put these missile launchers in here, essentially Aegeus onshore. Right. And then that was the other loophole was we can have mid range Tomahawk missiles and mid range nuclear missiles on ships at sea in the Baltic Sea and in the Black Sea. And so it's right there. They might as well be in Europe anyway. Oops, should have added that to the treaty. Uh, don't worry, Trump tore it up later anyway, and Biden refused to get back in it. But but then Obama, um, first of all, uh, we can't, it's just too much. I already spent too much time in the Middle East, but he picked the fight in, in Syria that ended up leading to Russia going back to Syria. And he also um, uh, added more members to NATO and he did his government did the coup i'm sorry they ran out of bombs as far as far as as far as i'm aware at one point when they were bombing syria under obama they physically ran out of bombs like they they couldn't manufacture them Uh fast enough because they were yeah (laughs) yeah i think that's right i think that's right and it was at the same time they were bombing um yemen too and they were like, oh, man, we're getting low on our inventories here, bombing Iraq, Syria and Yemen at the same time. Because, you know, the ISIS war that was, um, you know, Iraq War Three, that was in Iraq and Syria at the same time. Mm-hmm. Back in the Shiites in Iraq, but uh, back in the Kurds, still can't admit the Shiites are the good guys in Syria. So back in the Kurds there. But uh, and then bombing Yemen, helping the Saudis bomb Yemen at the same time. You're right. They did. They or at least, cl- you know, claim that they were running extremely low on all their inventories. Um, and then very importantly for our story, uh, Jake Sullivan, Victoria Nuland, and Joe Biden were all in on the coup of 2014. Remember, the Biden government is just the Obama government, less Obama, mm-hmm. right? And thank God without Michelle Flournoy in there. <laughs> but um, Jake Sullivan was Hillary Clinton's right-hand man and then became um, Biden's national security advisor. Blinken has been Biden's right-hand man for generations, like for 25 years or something. He was his uh, right-hand aide in the Senate, came with him to the vice presidency, and then is, you know, now our secretary of state. Um, And I forget exactly what his role was in 2014. I'm sure he was working for Biden in one capacity or another. And then Victoria Nuland is Robert Kagan's wife. Robert Kagan is the extremely important neoconservative theoretician who wrote toward a neo-Reaganite foreign policy with Bill Kristol back in 1996 and was the co-founder of PNAC and was one of the major ringleaders outside of the government, of the neocons outside of the government. He was one of the major ones who lied us into war in 2003. Um, That's his wife, Victoria Newland. And uh, they were involved in the sort of color-coded, they didn't really have a color this time, but the, the coup disguised as a revolution that took place in uh, February of 2014. And what happened was the um, same guy that they prevented from taking office with the Orange Revolution in 2004 ended up 
getting elected in a landslide in 2010 and in a free and fair election. And um, then, and he really, they say he's a Russian agent and all this. He was from a Russian leaning party from the east of the country, but he was actually really trying to cut a neutral path and a middle way uh, for Ukraine. And he was supposed to sign it's sort of a letter of intent with the EU. It's, I forgot the exact name of it, but it's hardly EU membership, but it's taking a big step toward EU membership, I guess. Yeah. And he was supposed to sign this deal and he was going to have to take on all these new debts um, and, uh, you know, from the IMF. And he was going to have to pass all these new austerity measures. Why for are they always involved and, in this? Like, Yeah, they're all, it's yeah. always a huge part of it. And then Putin came and said, well, listen, I'll just give you a bunch of money or I'll give you a loan at low interest without strings attached, right? Where I'm not trying to gangsterize you out of your resources and encourage you to default. Mm. I'll just loan you the money. Yeah. Um, and they said, and if you have a deal with us, you can't have a deal with Russia. And he goes, well, if you have a deal with me, I don't care if you have a deal with them too. And whatever. he just made it easy. Putin's side made it easy. And the, the, the Germans really, you know, pushed by the Americans, I think we're driving this hard bargain. Well, so Yanukovych comes out and says, well, geez, I feel like a bride that just showed up at my wedding to be greeted with a prenuptial agreement. And now I'm not so sure I'm even in love with you anymore at all. I'm kind of not in the mood and I'm going home. I thought it was pretty funny too. Um, and so he goes home, but then in the West of the country, they freak out. Now the, there are a lot of protesters and a lot of people in the middle and whatever, who are just essentially I mean, they exist and they're important in their own way, but they're essentially irrelevant to our story here. What's important is that far right wing nationalists in Western Ukraine were very much for this deal with the EU, not because they're not nationalists and want to suck up to the EU as much as this was a severe. It was meant to be a real break with Russia and a thumb in the eye to Russia and a signal that we would way rather move west than be under the domination of the Russians, which whatever understandable i guess yeah. but not my problem their problem but so um the thing is so they came out and they held these protests from november oh and by the way in late september carl gershman the head of the ned threatened putin himself with regime change if he didn't like the way we're playing it in ukraine right there in the washington post um and then uh the and the ned is basically as they said, this is like the official story, I think, even from their own leaders, that the NED does what the CIA used to do covertly. We do it more openly just through bankrolling so-called civil society organizations and NGOs and whatever. And so that was what happened here. Same thing with the Orange Revolution. Um, all of a sudden, there's millions of dollars available for these protesters out there in the Maidan. They call it the big town square in Kiev. Um, there's also millions of dollars for giant TV screens and heaters and food and porta potties and rock concerts and whatever, every, everything that anybody could need to keep an outdoor protest movement going for months through all of November, all of December in the dead of winter through January and through February. And the whole thing finally came to a head. Well, first of all, before it comes to a head two weeks before it comes to a head, the Russians intercept and leak a phone call of Robert Kagan's wife, Victoria Newland, on the phone with the American ambassador to Ukraine, Jeffrey Pyatt. Now, Kagan, uh, pardon me, Newland, at that time, is um, the Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs, 
which makes her essentially like the ambassador to the European Union, which I think is a separate position, but she's sort of like the ambassador at large for Europe kind of a job. And most of your audience have probably heard of this. It's the F the EU phone call where Victoria Newland, according to CNN, the big outrage here is that she said a bad word. My goodness, can you believe it? A diplomat said a bad word on a private phone call that got intercepted. Well, she was being very diplomatic and she was saying F the EU, our friends, the EU, but why? And that was what CNN didn't want to talk about at all. Oh, the F word, everybody. That's, oh, our 15 seconds are up. We got to go to commercial. We're not even going to tell you what they were talking about. What were they talking about? She was saying F the EU because Germany is taking too long dragging ass on this coup d'etat, man. They want to resolve the situation. We don't want to resolve it. We want it to come to a head. We want a coup. We want to overthrow. And when the government, and once the thing falls apart, here's what we're going to do. We want this guy in the government. We want this guy out of the government. We want this guy to be his handler. And we're going to do it like this. And I just got off the phone with Jake Sullivan. And he told me that Vice President Biden is down for it. And tomorrow we're going to put him on a, on a conference call with the participants to give them the proper attaboys and get the deets to stick the details. And then Pyatt says, that's right. We have to hurry it up. We have to midwife it. We have to glue it. We have to make it sail before Putin can do anything about it while he's distracted with the Sochi Olympics. And, and you can guarantee anything that he can try to do, he'll try to do to whatever, but we got to try to get away with it. And there it all is. Two weeks later, after being caught red-handed, they did the coup anyway. And what they did was they had the Europeans get Yanukovych to agree to pull his police forces back and agree to new elections. And then all the protesters would go home. Yeah, well, guess what? The far right-wing nationalists, which is, you know, I should go ahead and stop here and explain the... I think the mass of the people out there, basically, you could call nationalists. Yeah. I think yeah. the core That's, of the ones such a weird who way got it the term. done. Yeah. Like the term. Yeah. Gets well, look, so, I mean, like, I don't know what. The... I think you can be you can be a nationalist without being a national socialist, without being a Hitler loving Nazi. Well, yeah. However, these guys on the far right of the Maidan movement and since were primarily made up of the right sector and Svoboda parties, who literally are the proud descendants of the Galatian SS, who served the Nazi regime in World War II and helped perpetrate the Holocaust against Poles and Jews and hell, other Ukrainians, ethnic Russian Ukrainians during that war. Yeah. And, um, you know, they're not even really neo-Nazis. They're just Nazis. They're just yeah. Hitler-loving Nazis. They're the proud, literal grandsons of the guys who serve Hitler. Right. Which is different than, you know, America and Britain were on the other side of that war. So if you have neo-Nazis in Britain or neo-Nazis in America, it's like nobody cares what they think. Right. Like a bunch of if you can find a swastika banner hanging up in America, you can't find anyone with actual power anywhere for 50 miles. Right. Just doesn't yeah. matter. Right. Over there, that's not the case. Right. Over there, half the country fought on Russia's side. The other half fought on Germany's side, <laughs> and you know, it's a, it's a different thing. Mm -hmm. And and so you do. And, and in the coup of the night of the 21st, it was led by guys from what was called the right sector and Svoboda Party. And they are avowed Hitler loving Nazis. 
And when Yanukovych pulled his police back, they simply seized all the government buildings. And then the first thing they did was put up uh, swastika, you know, banners of swastikas and iron crosses and, uh, you know, American Confederate flags, Southern Confederate flags all over the place. And it was the C-14, which is the militia of the Svoboda, uh, Svoboda Party. Well, the C-14, the 14, I don't know what the C means, but the 14 stands for the 14 famous words of the slogan of the white supremacists about securing the future of white children and all that. And then um, it's funny. I've been counting them up for the book that I'm writing and I can only ever find people say, yeah, and then five of these people came to prominent positions of power. But I keep finding different people saying that and I keep counting a different three here and three here and whatever. And I'm up to 11 prominent positions of power were taken by members of right sector or Svoboda right after the coup. Um, but we stand so, with Ukraine, Scott. We stand, yeah. we stand with Ukraine. So now this, listen, yeah, this is, so, yeah. let me just say here, I'm sorry because I'm rambling, but let me just say here real quick that when Putin says that this is a good enough excuse to invade the country, that he's got to denazify it and all of this, yeah, that's no. really not true. It's not a good enough excuse to invade. And I'm not saying that it is. But it is true, though, that, well, let me just say real quick here. I, I swear real quick. Right after the coup, they threatened to kick the Russians out of the Sevastopol naval base in Crimea. And so the Russians said, Niet, and just took over the thing. No one was killed. It was just a coup de main. They just took over it uh, from their base there. They just went outside and, and annexed it shortly after that. Then also war broke out in the east because the far eastern groups that had supported Yanukovych and the party of regions um, were mad that their elected government got overthrown. So they said, well, if you can occupy government buildings and overthrow it, we can occupy government buildings and refuse to accept your authority. And then the new government declared a war on terrorism and invaded the East and launched a massive war against them and killed 10,000 people almost in, you know, in the first year. It was a horrible war. You know, again, oh, we got to make it sail. We got to glue it. We got to make it stick. All of this stuff. Oh, really? It leads immediately to a bloody war and 10,000 dead. You know, the coup in, in Kiev. Um, and then they had this peace deal, which, oh, and I should say, this is when the Nazis really came to the fore and they formed this major new militia, the Azov Battalion, but there are others, the Adar Battalion and others, but especially Azov, which is at its core, a bunch of Nazis, thousands of them leading at the front line of this war. Now, the Germans insisted on a peace deal at the end of 14 and then again at the beginning of 2015, the Minsk peace deals, Minsk one and Minsk two. Now, they agreed to pull back their heavy artillery and heavy equipment tanks and these kinds of things. And, and they ceased their airstrikes. I mean, Kiev was using cluster bombs against people of their own country. Um, and um, but they called all that off and they, they kind of reduced everything down to what they call low level fighting. But there's still constant fighting in the east and, you know, Amnesty International. Uh, and others too, but they did reports about how these Nazis were torturing people to death and committing all kinds of war crimes against the people of the Donbass. Mm -hmm. And it is just quite frankly true, just mm -hmm. like with supporting the Chechen terrorists in 99. It's just true that America refused, not only really refused to lean on Kiev to implement the deal, but probably lean on them to not implement the deal. And they were supposed to give Kiev, they're supposed to pull all their forces back and give um, Kiev, pardon me, uh, the Donbass region there, Donetsk and Luhansk, a whole new level of autonomy and federalism there um, and help rebuild 
and all of this stuff. Make peace. Pull all the Nazis back. But they couldn't. And if you just type in, here's another footnote for you. I'm not a loser. And that's um, the current president of Ukraine, um, uh, uh, Zelensky, who in 2000 and uh, was 16, I think, or 17, he was elected on a peace platform. I'm going to end this war. And one of the first things he did is he went to a town in the east to tell to call the troops back. And if you just search this, you'll find uh, this video clip where he's confronting these Nazis and he's telling them from the Azov battalion, he's telling them, listen, everybody pull back. We've got an agreement here. I'm trying to work this thing out and I need everybody to pull back. And they go, no, screw you. What are you going to do about it? And he's like, listen, I'm the president of this country. And they're like, so? And they're not even officers. Like these guys are just thugs. They're like, they're, if you gave them a rank, they wouldn't even be a sergeant, right? They're, you know, they're just enlisted militia guys. And they're telling the president of the country, go to hell. And he goes, hey, I'm 41 years old. I'm not a loser. You can't talk to me like that. And they go, yeah, we can. And I'll tell you right now, if you pull a thousand of us back, we'll send 10,000 more in. You're not in this war. You can't. Now, if the Americans had said, don't worry, we have your back. If you have to face down a bunch of Hitler loving Nazis in your country to enforce this peace deal, we'll send our CIA or whoever to help you do that, to disarm them and round them up and put them in jail or to solve that problem. They didn't dare. These guys were the most powerful and influential and useful part of the Ukrainian military. They were going to do that. And the Americans weren't going to do that. The Americans, they, you know, all of the war party demanded Obama pour in weapons. Here, Obama's the first black president to support a Nazi coup d'etat, but he was afraid to arm them. He didn't want to encourage this thing to escalate any worse than it had already gone. And then Donald Trump comes in and I got the quote from the fall of 27, uh, 2017, the first year that uh, Trump was in power where his government says, listen, see, we're arming Ukraine. So now you can't call us pro-Russian traitors, even though that was a total hoax. They were framed by the Democrats, the FBI and the CIA all along. It was never true. Not a one word of it, that Russiagate hoax. But to prove how innocent they were, they started pouring weapons into Ukraine. And the entire American War Party was for this. Even during Obama, Obama was the only one who wouldn't let him do it. His entire government demanded it. And but under Trump, they got their free reign. So they started dumping in all these weapons to Ukraine. Well, they go, oh, no, these are just defensive weapons. Well, no, they're not. They're at war right now against the people of the east of their country. And they're using these weapons in that war. And you can find them when they're not calling them defensive weapons. You can admit you can find them admitting that, like, yeah, we're using the weapons in the war. All right. Of course they are. And you can find footage. Now there's a clip surfaced of McCain and Graham in December 2016 after Trump's elected, but before he's sworn in. And they go over to Ukraine and go, we swear we're with you. We're dumping all these weapons in. And so you can fight the evil Russians when they're fighting their own people who are backed by the Russians. But they're not Russians. They're just ethnic Russians. But they're Ukrainians from Donbass is who they're fighting. Um, so then Putin goes, well, hey, man, are you guys ever going to implement this peace deal that you signed? Our allies, the French and the Germans signed it. We're not doing this. And then the answer was, no, we're not doing this. We're going to keep the war going and we're going to keep pouring in weapons and pouring in weapons the whole time through Donald Trump. And Trump brings in two more members of NATO and he vastly increases uh, naval and air force harassment of the Russians, including flying our nuclear bombers to right up off of their coast to force them to turn on their radars and all of that. 
and not just in the in the Baltic and Black Seas, but also in the Ashtok Sea, which is north of Korea there in the far east, north of north of Vladivostok and um, and constantly testing their defenses and harassing them. I mean, you don't have Russian bombers constantly testing the defenses off of, you know, 12 and a half miles off of Britain's coast. We don't have that off of Martha's Vineyard or Miami or or San Diego. And we probably well, it would be a huge escalation if the Russians were to do that. But we think we could just do that to them at all times. No big deal. Um, and all of that. Then Biden comes in and Biden increases massive uh, naval exercises in the Black Sea, um, increases massive weapon sales to uh, Ukraine and essentially continues making them a de facto member of NATO. And they announced in September and November these new, I forgot all the titles for it, forgive me, but all these new memorandums of understanding and announcements of our security relationship and all of these things where they even say in their own language, they don't use the term de facto, but they say we're normalizing all of Ukraine's military to you know standardize it to NATO standards. And this is part of the whole game of NATO expansion, right? Is getting rid of American weapons, because if you're going to be part of NATO, you have to have the same kind of interoperability with the rest of the NATO countries and fire the same kind of weapons. And they even call the, I think it's the 556, it's a NATO round, right? Like that's the standard NATO round. Um, and, uh, or is it the 223? One or the other of those. Same damn difference as far as I could tell. But anyway, um, so yeah, man. Uh, so then starting last fall, um, the Russians start building up and the Americans took a, a two track uh, diplomacy. They said, one, you better not do it. And two, if you do, we're going to F you up, man. And that was it. And they did not really try to negotiate. Now, they did have one counter offer. And frankly, my mistake, I admit it, was that I took it too seriously. Um, Biden had said repeatedly and believably we're not bringing Ukraine into NATO. The Germans wouldn't let us anyway. Um, and, and we're not putting nuclear missiles into Ukraine. Putin says he's afraid we're going to put mid-range nuclear missiles into Ukraine. No way we're going to do that. I don't know what you're talking about. I think that was credible, frankly. But Putin said, I'm not taking your word for it. Put it in writing. Declare Ukraine's, uh, Ukraine's neutrality and that you will not try to bring them into NATO. And Biden says, well, one, we're not going to bring them into NATO. And two, it's a sacred principle that we will never put that in writing. We will never promise. We will never let an outside power like Russia tell us who to close the door on to membership in our alliance. Now, this open door thing, we just made it up. There's not even actually a door, right? It's all just pretend. But now that we made it up, it's sacred. Like that time the Virgin Mary gave birth to God's son, you know? <laughs> we can never go back on it, ever. It's sacred. Never, ever. And so... Unlike, you know... And so they wouldn't do it. Constitution. <laughs> and, and look, and I think, I think that they... And, and going back, they really blabbed their mouth over and over again that they would like to see Russia invade, truly, so that they can use that to weaken Russia. They thought that Putin is overconfident, that if he invades, in fact, if you look at their statements from December and January, you can see where they presume that Russia will win the war quickly and will smash the Ukrainian military to pieces and the Ukrainian state to pieces. But that's okay too. They want to back an insurgency. 
they were not envisioning that at this point in the war, we would still be backing the Ukrainian military. They thought by now we would be backing a Ukrainian insurgency. And they openly were comparing it to Afghanistan in the 1980s and to the dirty war in Syria. And Admiral Stradvridis, who would have been Hillary Clinton's secretary of defense, probably if not Flournoy, but he would have been in there somewhere, maybe national security advisor. He told the New York Times, hey, listen, you got me. We admit it. We don't know the first thing about how to fight an insurgency, but we sure know how to back one like <laughs> we did in Afghanistan and in Syria. And that's what we want to do. And so now at this late date, you and I are now recording this almost halfway through May. At this late date, they have openly announced their status. This was a little bit low key at the beginning, although, of course, we were talking about it all along, but a, a little bit low key at the beginning. Now it is absolutely announced in the words of our own secretary of defense and our own secretary of state and your prime minister, that the goal here is to weaken Russia. We want to prolong the war, to bleed Russia, to weaken Russia, to hurt them so bad this time. If we can't win the war against them outright and, and force them out, then we'll still make it take as long as possible, be as bloody and difficult as possible in order to hurt and weaken the Russians. And ultimately, sometimes they admit, as quoted by Niall Ferguson, um, uh, in Bloomberg, for example, that we want to weaken the Russians to the point of regime change, that their state will be um, so weakened that it'll fall apart. And then I know I promised to be brief. I forgot what point I was making then. I do. And have now a they openly you, say though. they openly say, listen, we are afraid that Putin might use nukes. And the thing is, we know that he said he would only ever use nukes if the existence of his state was threatened. But also, in the same breath, in the same interview, on the same show, in the same paper, in the same article, they'll say it. Also, we're trying to pour in weapons to Ukraine in order to bog down and bleed the Russians to the point where their government falls apart and their state is truly threatened. And yes, we do assess that Putin might even assess a loss in Ukraine itself as a threat to the future of the Russian state, which, yes, we just told you we think is when he might use nuclear weapons. And that's why we're trying to do it to him, I guess. And and I swear to God, man, it's, it, it gets pretty surreal. But go and look at this. It happened the other day. You can find it on PBS NewsHour. It was John J. Mearsheimer, M-E-A-R-S-H-E-I-M-E-R, Mearsheimer, S-C-H. Um, uh, versus Evelyn Farkas, F-A-R-K-A-S. She worked for Obama. And they're in a debate, sort of, kind of, on PBS NewsHour just the other day. And they outline exactly this. And they agree on exactly this. One, Putin said he'll use nukes if the existence of his state is threatened. Two, he could see the loss of a war in Ukraine as enough to threaten the existence of his state. Three, we're pouring in enough weapons that we hope will make him lose the war in Ukraine. And then, yeah, that might push him to use nuclear weapons. They all agree on that. And then Mearsheimer says, this is effing crazy. What are we doing? We could all get vaporized to death and die. In the 60s, Jack Kennedy was in the same position. Guess what? He negotiated. Are you kidding me right now? And then Evelyn Farkas, the liberal Democrat from the Obama government, says, 
Oh, no, I think we have a lot of leeway before Putin starts using nukes. And surely, even though, again, she agrees to the stipulation that, yes, the policy we are on is if you were trying to provoke him to use nukes, this is how you would do it. Um, oh, yeah, of course, we all agree about that. But still, I don't think he'll do it. Uh, you know what he'll do? Um, he'll probably signal to us that he would before he would. Hmm. Is he not, and then is she, he I not guess, kind of signaling? I mean, I... he's having he's having his secretary, his his foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, has warned that this could spiral into nuclear war no less than is, three times. So that, far, yeah, I mean, I've seen those 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 comments. I mean, so the last thing I'd like to, to get this seems like a good place to ask this is the last thing I want to ask is what do you think Putin's end game was here? Because that's something that I haven't figured out yet. Because like I've seen people being like, "Oh, Putin's just an idiot and he's going crazy." I'm like, "No." I think he really just wants the far east of the country. You I think, think so? Because I've seen suggestions that it was about um, making sure that there was zero chance that Ukraine would enter NATO and that the, the the yeah the West would uphold this agreement that you know there would be no weapons there, etc. Well, and yeah, I mean that's certainly part of it. But yeah, I guess like I was just talking about like how much of the country is he trying to conquer? Yeah. You know, the, at first the question was, is he trying to go for full regime change in Kiev? Is he going to sack Kiev and control it and install his own guy in power, you know, and keep it under martial law forever and this kind of deal, you know? Um, is he going to take the entire east of the country to the Dnieper River, which more or less bisects the country between predominantly, you know, Russian, ethnic Russian and Russian speakers versus the West, which is more ethnic Ukrainian and Ukrainian speakers? Um or is he just going to take the Donbass, which is Donetsk and Luhansk? But that would mean territory bigger than what was controlled by the separatists already, mm -hmm. right? They didn't control all of the Donbass, only part of it. So it was like, okay, not I'm not talking about his plan A, but I'm saying you and I looking at it, we could say, okay, plan A would be just take what the separatists already control, right? Plan B would be take the greater Donbass, mm -hmm. which would mean fighting the Ukrainians and forcing them out. And it would mean what they have done, just taking the entire Azov coast between Crimea and Russia to the east there, um, and including the town of Mariupol and all the land all the way to Crimea, which all that counts as, as the Donbass region there. Then plan C would be go all the way to the Dnieper River, although probably not take Kiev, but maybe just the outskirts of Kiev or, and or take Kiev and regime change in Kiev. Then after that, the question is, well, and see, we are talking about a government program here. War is a government program and these things do not work well. So you can see how if just, he takes the entire east of the country, you, you know, know, so the country's about divided about in half, 50-50 between Russians and Ukrainians, you know, ethnically wise, not necessarily politically. But if he takes the Donbass, now it's not 50-50 anymore, right? Now he's just taken 20% of his 50% of the people who leaned pro him, right? So now he's empowered the Ukrainian nationalists even more than before. The, the pro-Russian types will never win an election again without the Donbass, right? So now it makes sense for him to go all the way to the Dnieper River and to take and maybe even all of the southern coast all the way to Transnistria on the on the Moldovan border, because now, well, geez, it wouldn't be fair for me to leave all these ethnic Russians in a state where now they're in the super minority, where before they were like 50 50. 
And now they're going to have no political representation at all. So now I need to expand my war to protect not just the ethnic Russians in the Donbass, but all the ethnic Russians east of Ukraine. Now you see, well, that leaves them with another problem. Now, he obviously doesn't want to occupy all of Western Ukraine forever and a bunch of ethnic Ukrainians who hate his guts and would fight an insurgency forever and ever, does he? Mm. But doesn't really want to leave a rump state ruled by a bunch of ethnic Ukrainians and led by a bunch of right sector and Svoboda and Azov Nazis. Now, now without any Russian, uh, you know, ethnic Russian kind of counterbalance against them at all. So now and in alliance with NATO and Poland, right on your newly expanded border, but still. So now it makes sense from a government employee's point of view to go ahead and invade and crush the West of the country and cleanse it of ethnic Ukrainians, force them all into Poland and Romania and whatever, if they had the power to do that. And I don't know if they do, but I'm just saying from the logic of a government employee, mm-hmm. You keep biting off more and more. Now you have more and more reasons to keep biting off more and more and you get stuck on this thing. Now, contrary to that is the fact that the Ukrainians are fighting like hell and the Americans are pouring in weapons. Now, whether they have enough soldiers, enough conscripts and enough weapons to continue to really put up a fight against the Russians, I don't know. And I tend to doubt it. And they're mostly getting, because they're getting 40 billion dollars. The, what do you mean? They, get, they, they got the money. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think they're just going to run out of boys, right? I think there's just more Russians than Ukrainians. And that at the end of the day, they're just not going to be able to continue to put up the fight. And as you know, Colonel McGregor says, you can pour in howitzers, but it takes a while to train a team on a howitzer, man, like at least a couple of weeks. Um, you jump in a tank. You don't know how to drive a tank. You need to be trained for weeks and weeks with your team on how to drive a tank. And, you know, these kinds of things, it's not very easy to do. So can, and then the Russians keep destroying convoys of weapons before they get to the front and all this kind of stuff. So um, anyway, Colonel McGregor thinks that the Russians are having a somewhat a tough time. Maybe they invaded from too many directions at once to accomplish their goals and were kind of spread too thin. But that whatever, at the end of the day, it's a long, slow grind led by Russian artillery and there's just nothing that can stop them. And so it, they're going to have their way kind of sooner or later. The question is, how far are they going to define those goals? And I should bring up here because it is important to your question. There's a whole controversy about the giant convoy to Kiev and whether the purpose of that convoy was to sack Kiev and do a regime change there or whether it was just a feint. And I side with McGregor here just because he's the wisest military man I know. Mm. I don't know. I guess I could ask more military guys I know, but he certainly seems to think that it was a feint. And that it was essentially the purpose of the convoy to Kiev was to prevent any um, Ukrainian military forces in the north of the country from breaking south toward Mariupol to reinforce the fighters there and their forces there. Because that was the primary mission at that point was creating this so-called land bridge to Crimea, dominating all the land along the Azov coast to Crimea in order to secure, well, first of all, Crimean sovereignty, Russian sovereignty over Crimea, but also the uh, fresh water resources for them there mm-hmm. and all that too. And that's the new uh, news, by the way, from yesterday is that the Russians are declaring their intent to annex Kherson, which is a town just to the Northwest of the Crimean Peninsula. So if you picture where Crimea is sticking off from Ukraine there, this is now toward Odessa, not toward Mariupol. This is going toward, toward uh, Moldova now to the West. Um, and that's, you know, to guarantee shipping, and fresh water through there and all of that. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, you know, McGregor also points out 
that um, the um, the diplomacy was halted. Right. There were some talks going on in Turkey, as you mentioned. Look, just give up the Donbass, which you're never going to get back anyway. They've been de facto independent for seven years anyway, eight years anyway. Crimea, that ship has sailed. That ship sailed in 1783 and sure as hell sailed again in 2014. And there's just nothing you can do about that now. So recognize that and promise in your constitution you're not going to try to join NATO and the war's over. And those were, frankly, reasonable terms. Um, but and, and there was more to it than that, but that was the, the essence of it. And they probably could have gotten a piece on those terms. But the Ukrainians said, we will agree to that. As long as the Americans give us essentially like a NATO style war guarantee that if Russia ever attacks us again, America promises to go to war for us. Well, we're not going to do that. And so the deal didn't get signed. But then also that was when they came out with all the propaganda about genocide in this town, Buca. And yes, there were some civilians killed, but it wasn't like thousands of people were rounded up in machine gun like in Red Dawn or whatever. It wasn't like that at all. It was, you know, some bodies found. And in fact, there were, it was at least somewhat disputable about who had killed them. Some of them seem to have been killed for being accused uh, Russian collaborators tied up with white arm, uh, 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 white cloth around their wrists and with Russian MREs at their feet. Like they had accepted Russian MREs and then got shot for being collaborators, which they, you know, the Azov Nazis are harshly per uh, persecuting people who are being accused of collaborating with the Russians. So we don't even know who killed all those people anyway. But certainly was, we're talking about dozens of people. OK, that's not look. America got a million Iraqis killed a million. Talk about we're killing upwards of you know, certainly more than half a million dead in Yemen right now. You know, yeah. um, and they I mean, want to talk about, oh, a few dozen people are genocide. It was just to stop the talks. Right. And this is why they helped the Ukrainians. Also, where they helped the Ukrainians sink that Russian battleship that helped make it where Putin was like, screw talks. We're just going to beat these guys. And so the negotiations are over. I mean, see, here's my thing, man. If I was just like your next door neighbor lady, OK, just some innocent, regular lady, grab her from the grocery store and ask her her opinion. I believe that she would believe that if a war broke out on Russia's border and America had a close relationship with the government that Russia was fighting, that America should be in talks with Russia to stop the fighting. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Forget winning the assumption. war. Yeah. No, that's, yeah. I mean, that's let's, pretty fair. That's I'd say what most yeah, let's people have a like. meeting. Yeah. Sit down. That's exactly. Right. So just why are we not even trying? We're not even trying. Isn't that the, the dog that didn't bark in this whole thing? Did, didn't everyone feel a little bit surprised in the first few days of the war to not hear anything about we're still trying to talk and figure out a way to end the fighting? There's no talk of trying to achieve a ceasefire here. None. Tony Blinken, again, has not spoken to Tony Lav uh, to Sergey Lavrov since February the 15th. Your foreign minister... Boris Johnson went to Kiev and told Zelensky not to negotiate. Told him not to negotiate. And you just pull that up right now. No problem. It's in the news. It's no, everywhere. I, 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 yeah, yeah. I'll stick it in the in the description for everyone. But I think yeah. this characterizes like what you've the basically the theme of this entire podcast basically is that they don't want any war to end. Because when the war ends, the gravy train ends and the 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 yeah. That's essentially it, and and it's really depressing to think that that's why there's no peace in in Ukraine, especially. I mean, I I never get the selective outrage 
because I mean, there's there's awful, awful, awful wars going on all around the world. I mean, yeah. Why are the Ukrainians suddenly important, uh, more important? Not even, of course, every life's important. But I mean, what you know, where was this outrage like about Yemen, about about all the stuff we've talked about today? Really, you know, right. you didn't you didn't see anyone think it was oh, think of the poor Libyans. Let's take the Libyans. Like no one cared. <laughs> so it's um, only enough to start a war against them, not enough to stop one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But um, Scott, it's been yeah, we've done blasted past 90 minutes here and unfortunately i have uh i've got to go because i'm going for, going for dinner with some friends um great but i really want to thank you for your time i i'm gonna have to probably listen to this back several times to absorb everything and read my books me, and i will 100 percent be ordering your books uh enough already probably first it's in my amazon cart so or uh yeah I'll get it from somewhere. Yeah. But and, yes. and listen, I, I, I think I mentioned I'm writing one about the background of the Russia-Ukraine story now. If people yes. just go to antiwar.com slash Scott, you can read my two-hour-long speech that I gave about that, um, explaining it. And we're turning that into a book now. But also, I have a new book coming out in just a few weeks that's a compilation of interviews I've done on nuclear weapons. It's called Hotter Than the Sun, mm. Time to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. And it's really good. So uh, I think people are really going to like that too. Yeah, we'll definitely check that out. So yeah, links for all that um, will be in the description below for everyone, um, along with all the stuff that you mentioned that I can pull up for, for people. So yeah, really want to thank you for your time, man. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the podcast. If you want to leave us a comment, that would be awesome. Please like, share, subscribe. And if you're listening on Apple, please leave us a review. Until next time, thanks for listening.